Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast, brought to you by Ceres. I'm Paul Ellis, your host for these programs about developments in this fast-growing industry. Asha Mehta is a market maker, investment pioneer, and author of Power of Capital, which will be available at Amazon tomorrow, October 25th. I had the privilege to preview this book subtitled, An Adventure Capitalist's Journey to a Sustainable Future, in which Meta, who is the founder and chief investment officer of Global Delta Capital, focuses on emerging and frontier markets and sustainable investing. In addition to having managed the world's first frontier market fund, she launched one of the earliest onshore China strategies in the United States. In today's episode of the Sustainable Finance Podcast, Meta will share her views on rapidly evolving emerging markets and provide her insights into current geopolitics. Our conversation will examine the changes gripping the world today and why the average person and investor should care. But before we start, I want to say a few words about our sponsor. I'm thrilled to talk about the important work Ceres is doing. Ceres is a nonprofit organization working with the most influential capital market leaders to solve the world's greatest sustainability challenges. Through their powerful network and global collaborations of investors, companies, and nonprofits, Ceres drives action and inspires equitable, market-based, and policy solutions throughout the economy. To learn more, go to series.org slash podcast. That's C-E-R-E-S dot org slash podcast. At Ceres, sustainability is the bottom line. Hello, Asha, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Hi, Paul. Thanks so much for having me here with you today. It's a pleasure. We've been, I've been waiting for sure for this program for a while. I, I just really like what you have done with your book, and I think it's very impressive. So let's jump right into the questions so we have plenty of time to, to cover those today. What role will technology play in the leapfrog of emerging markets during the next decade? And I'm not sure all of our listeners know what leapfrogging means in terms of financial markets, so why don't we start there? Sure, Paul. Thank you so much again for having me and for starting with this question. Technology is one of the core mega themes that I highlight in the upcoming book, Power of Capital. Three mega themes, we'll talk through each of them. Um, and and I, I look at technology as really an accelerator. When it comes to leapfrogging, emerging markets oftentimes don't have the infrastructure that developed markets do, but they can leapfrog ahead of developed markets or onto um, develop market standards in many cases because they don't have to go through the process of creating that technology. They can adopt what's already been built. And my view is that technology is an accelerator for growth in emerging markets, both in terms of improvements in macroeconomic positioning and stock market returns, as well as it, as it, as it comes to impact, which we'll talk about later in the session. But let me give you three reasons why I see technology as an accelerator in the emerging markets. And they, they would be intuitive, and I'll give you a couple of examples as I go along. The first one is cost. The reality is technology is cheap, which is essential for populations with less spending power. And over the past decade, the cost of technology has quite simply plummeted. The number of smartphone owners accordingly has skyrocketed. 
the vast majority of the world's population today carries a supercomputer in their pockets. And as I travel around the emerging markets, I often find that many people in these countries carry more than one cell phone. The reality is we know necessity is the mother of invention. And the innovations in what has historically been a poorer region are vast. I've been on the ground in Brazil uh, speaking with a SIM seller, someone who sells SIM cards for cell phones. He obtained his street license by mobile phone. Um, In Lagos and, and across the globe, I've spoken with laborers who pick up jobs by phone today rather than losing hours fighting traffic. Technology enables employees, customers, business owners, and investors as well, which we'll come to, to bypass infrastructure gaps and logistical hurdles. That's cost. Number two, low base effects. Again, the reality that emerging markets oftentimes are starting from a lower level of development than developed markets. There's a popular joke in South Africa that says, what did South Africa use before candles? And the punchline is electricity. (laughs) Uh, A a bit of a discouraging fact. Um, South Africa's electricity access rates are higher than much of the sub-Saharan African region, but nevertheless, the country experiences high energy poverty. That's due to wastage, limited reliability, financial burdens. But there are advances across the emerging world, led by China, led by India, but from Africa as well, leveraging the, the natural endowments that are within these countries and, again, the technology advances. The number three reason why I see technology as an accelerator in the emerging markets is demographics. Around 90% of the world's population under the age of 30 lives in a developing economy. This young cohort, as many of us are well aware, is quick to adapt to technology, eager to develop it further. Digital revenue coming from emerging markets company outpaces that. It's more than double that of digital revenue coming from the developed markets. Okay, well, that's great. So all of that is really important to the next question, which is how is ESG analytics in the emerging markets different from how it is and how it's used in developed markets? Thanks, Paul. This question really highlights the second of the three mega themes that I highlight in Power of Capital. So first is technology, and the second is the rise of sustainable investing. Uh, It's it's a provocative question you ask, um, that emerging markets analytics may very well look different than developed markets when it comes to sustainability. In my view, I see outsized relevance of sustainability in emerging markets, and the parameters within the sustainability complex look different in some ways. Um, We we haven't gotten to my investment style, but we'll come to it as as our discussion progresses. I'm a systematic investor. I'm a data-driven investor. I look at signals in my investment strategy and evaluate how predictive are they of returns. What I see in my analyses is that ESG signals have about twice the power in emerging markets than they do in developed markets. So this speaks to outsized relevance of the emerging markets, and it's intuitive. I'll walk you through a few examples to show how environmental, social, and governance um, needs look very different in develop in emerging markets versus developed. The environmental examples are palpable. Uh, I just talked about South Africa and the limited access to energy in this part of the world. Um, access to water, access to san- sanitate to proper sanitation. These core needs have a different profile in emerging markets than they do in developed markets. 
also palpable to recognize that emerging market countries are much more vulnerable to the physical risk presented by climate change. In a social context, the, the discrepancies are similarly very stark. In developed markets, a SASB-type framework often points to labor rights, diversity, product safety. These themes are all relevant in emerging markets as well. But in emerging markets, what we have facing us is the stark economic disparity. It continues to be an issue that we need to promote broader access to education, broader access to digital infrastructure. Food insecurity remains an ongoing issue. And in the emerging markets, there is lagging post-disaster management relative to developed markets. It's palpable. And governance as well. So across the spectrum of what's considered ESG, environmental, social, and governance considerations, emerging markets have lower standards of development than in the developed markets. We see this with respect to governance practices. And of course, we see this at the macro level as well, where in emerging markets from an investment perspective, there's no doubt the greatest risk of investing in emerging markets is country risk. So that has that is very significant investment ramifications. And what I've spoken to so far is the fact that ESG has outsized relevance in emerging markets, and that likely is, is driven by the fact that emerging markets have outsized vulnerability to many of these considerations. So as an investor, what do we do with this information? Um, there, there are three considerations I'd, I'd like to point listeners to. One is that we should use a sustainability lens when investing in emerging markets. It pays investors to evaluate investment opportunities along these lines. What is the physical risk exposure? Um, what is the standards of governance in a company that I'm investing in? Number two, an important difference between developed markets and emerging markets is that in developed markets, there's considerable cash sitting on the sidelines, while in emerging markets, the bulk of these countries are cash poor. We can, we can recognize the power of capital in countries that have more limited access to liquidity and that in many cases are starved for access to capital. So the second point I would make is that not only should we be using an ESG lens, but we shouldn't use that ESG lens to prevent us from investing capital within these countries. And number three, and perhaps the most exciting of the points, is that those investments do not need to be concessionary in nature. As I said before, ESG signals have outsized payoffs in emerging markets. And I see many of the opportunities to invest in these markets as very strong growth drivers. The sustainable development goals, which I imagine many of your listeners are intimately aware of, are a particularly relevant construct for emerging markets. Your listeners are likely aware of the $5 trillion funding gap that needs to be filled to extend prosperity across the globe. And the bulk of the investment opportunities to address the SDGs are actually based in this asset class, the emerging markets. So Asha, it's very clear from what you're saying that the opportunities are there in these emerging and frontier markets. Let's talk for a few minutes now about what emerging markets are thriving right now especially amidst all of the global economic turmoil that we're experiencing in the developed markets as well. Mm -hmm. and, and this brings me to my, my third and, and sort of final mega theme that I'd like to highlight, and technology, the rise of sustainability, and number three, the recognition that there is a new economic paradigm evolving. And to your point, there is economic turmoil globally. It's impacting this asset class, the emerging markets. It's impacting the developed markets as well. 
my view is that the emerging markets are mainstream uh, mainstream region in every way. They dominate the news headlines these days and, and of course, a negative way. They dominate GDP across the globe and productivity. They dominate growth. And yet they represent such a small portion of overall investor allocation. So about 50% of the country of the globe's productivity comes from this region, the bulk of the world's population. And yet only five to 10% of investor allocations are, are in this asset class. Um, I see over the next decade an opportunity for structural flows into the asset class. But it's not lost on me that there's a lot of fear and mystery when it comes to investing in this asset class. Over the last decade, of course, the developed markets have been a vast outperformer relative to the emerging markets. And my view is that many investors have learned some bad habits over the last decade of investing in a very concentrated set of securities and a very concentrated country and a very concentrated sector. And as we look ahead and look for growth in an environment like like the current one with the current turmoil that you referenced, inflation that hasn't been you know, it hasn't been experienced in a generation and interest rates longer than they've been in dec higher than they've been in decades. Investors will be looking for growth and emerging markets in many cases are showing very outsized potential. Right now, the asset class is trading at a multi-decade low with respect to valuation. So it speaks to some opportunity for mean reversion. Companies across the asset class have lower leverage than they do in developed markets, and there's pronounced growth. You asked me about particular regions or countries that are showing outsized opportunity right now or outperformance right now, um, and I'll highlight a few. Um, one is the Middle East, and this shouldn't be surprising given where energy prices have been. The Middle East has certainly been a beneficiary of flows and is bringing in uh, significant capital given the current energy environment. But they are using this capital to diversify their industries. And we've seen this occur with UAE. It's happening as we speak in Saudi Arabia as well. And accordingly, the country, Saudi Arabia, is liberalizing its social system. It's bringing women into the workplace. This is one of my favorite themes these days. By unleashing essentially twice, uh, uh, you know, a, a whole sector of the country's economy, women, they are fueling job growth, fueling productivity, and it's projected to be one of the fastest earners over the last decade, over the next decade. Latin America as well is showing promising opportunities. Uh, Brazil, Mexico, Peru, there are all opportunities to invest in the, the rising consumer class. And we also like Asia. Uh, China, China is a country that stands alone and, and a lot of controversy as it relates to China. But I do see the scale, breadth and depth of the market is exciting. But even outside of China, the Philippines and Malaysia are two countries that are reopening post-COVID and really positioned to benefit from incoming foreign flows. You know, Asha, I, I feel very strongly that in order to have any chance of attaining the sustainable uh, finance objectives that are embedded in the UN SDGs, that we really have to close the SDG funding gap, which is about $1.5 trillion on an annual basis between now and 2030. Uh, so how are things like the like you, the much higher inflation globally that you mentioned affecting the investment strategies in these emerging markets? It, it's such an important question. We live in a unique economic period, 
And again, the, the requirement to close that funding gap is so essential. Um, my view, like I said before, is that this becomes an, an opportune time to look at emerging markets. Inflation, again, hasn't been observed in a generation. It speaks to rising rates, which we're experiencing in real time here in the developed markets and slowing growth. And so investors do have to look around the globe to think about where am I going to get return in this environment? Um, emerging markets, as I alluded to before, are showing faster economic growth, macroeconomic growth, and perhaps less intuitive at the corporate level as well. Emerging markets are, for, are forecasted to grow faster than developed markets companies. The inflationary environment I see as a good thing for the asset class and creates opportunities in that equity markets often thrive in periods of higher inflation. We're seeing that now in terms of specific country returns. Argentina, Chile, Turkey, these are all countries that are experiencing very significant inflation and their equity markets are, are performing well as a result. And why is that? Um, part of that is because there is a relationship between profits and inflation that sometimes, and we see this in the U.S. these days, in a higher inflationary environment, those prices can be passed on to the underlying consumer. The other reason why it's an attractive feature for emerging markets is because a higher inflationary environment often speaks to a depreciating currency. And in a world where um, we are looking to diversify, where we are, are offshoring away from China, being invested in countries that have cheaper currencies that effectively are producing cheaper goods is, is a benefit. So, so we do think there that inflation is creating certain opportunities. Again, equities is a good place to be. We're looking for investing in countries that have strong fundamentals, depreciating FX, as I mentioned before, high growth prospects. There are many opportunities to use this broader environment uh, to find investment opportunities that align with the SDGs and, again, that are not concessionary at all to investors who are looking to generate a return. Well, that's very good news for uh, for our audience that I know is more tuned in to the emerging markets than the average investor. And let's come back to this whole uh, discussion of ESG, sustainability, and impact. And let's talk about ESG versus sustainability versus impact in the markets that, that, that you're representing. What are the differences for investors across that uh, those comparisons? So, so I'll admit for, um, you know, clearly that I think there's a really an alphabet soup that's led to a lot of confusion in this space and sort of the responsible investing. To add a new term to the ones you put out there, Paul. Sure, sure. A uh, lot of complexity in terms of disentangling. I'll start with sustainability because I see this as really the umbrella term. Um, sustainability to many investors does speak to climate. But I believe it's important to broaden the notion of climate to something more holistic, more enduring, um, and, and, and ultimately broader. In my framework, I look at the SDGs, as I referenced before, as sort of that umbrella thematic that allows me to be conscientious of climate considerations, but also look at other relevant themes as a sustainable investor. So I'll, I'll focus my response on disentangling ESG integration from impact and I do see them as two very different investment strategies. We've clearly come a long way as a movement from our old days as SRI investors, which are, you know, of course, more values-based investors, 
where historically it involved excluding certain sectors or certain sets of securities from an investment strategy and led to concessionary returns. I saw ESG integration as the next step on the platform where we're saying, hey, we can integrate these ESG considerations in our investment process in a way that benefits investors, in a way that mitigates risk and generates a return. And I spoke to some of these ideas earlier in our session um, where, you know, for example, if we invest with a governance lens, we can be better positioned to identify winners from losers in a given country. Companies that have stronger governance practices will tend to outperform. I see impact as really the next step on sort of this, this framework of integrating sustainability considerations. ESG is about how can we as investors benefit from these concepts and impact turns it around. How can we use the power of our capital to actually impact the businesses that we're investing in and the countries themselves? I think um, we're at a really interesting moment in time where the impact industry is taking scale. My view is it's been due for a revamp for a long time. And we're sitting in this moment where we have an opportunity to redefine how do we achieve impact. Uh, historically, it's been about sort of this white knight activist model where uh, companies will own a concentrated, or excuse me, investors will own a concentrated, concentrated set of securities um, and take an activist role with the management team or with the boards. I think that continues to be an effective way to drive impact, but there are many other models as well. In emerging markets, you know, simply being a capital allocator, as I said before, in markets that are starved for capital can be one way. But we're seeing other paradigms that are very effective as well. One of my favorites is collaborative engagements. We've seen the power of bringing investors together and calling for some specific action and actually, you know, making that action take hold. Um, the reality is capital makes the world go round, and currency is literally the tool that holds corporates accountable, holds their leaders accountable, can drive economic productivity, can promote each individual's well-being. So I, I see us as sitting at the, this moment in time where we can proceed from ESG integration to the next step, which is impact. That's really great, Asha, and I, we're, we're just about out of time uh, for the program for today, but is there anything else that you wanted to add about ESG analytics and how they are aligning now with traditional investing to improve portfolio performance? To me, it is fascinating that while we sit in this moment of time that thinking about intangibles and thinking about externalities is more relevant than ever, the, or, the other major secular shift we're experiencing is the rise of big data and the vast technology applications that can be brought to bear to make signal out of the unstructured data that often comes from ESG data sets. Again, I mentioned before, I'm a systematic investor, and I'm a big believer that quantitative data-driven tools are really best positioned to drive the next generation of sustainable investing. Historically, there have been very significant gaps in data. There hasn't been enough coverage. Uh, yeah, I remember looking at these data sets almost two decades ago, saying there wasn't enough history. Two decades have passed, and now we have a lot more history. Uh, there used to not be enough cross-sectional coverage, not enough companies reporting. Today, my view is that we don't live in a world with too little data, but in fact, we are experiencing data proliferation. And I see ESG analytics as very powerful 
and helping us streamline that data, identifying more, more robust signals from that data, exploring novel re relationships, and ultimately reporting this back to our, to our investors and being held accountable in many ways to not only how these signals are adding value to our portfolios, but how our portfolios are adding value to the investments that we're invested in. Great. Well, Asha, thank you very much for your time today. Now, where can our listeners learn more about Global Delta Capital and your new book, Power of Capital? And how can they get in touch with you about the topics that we've discussed in today's episode? Thanks so much. I, I would really welcome the opportunity to interact with your listeners to learn more about my views on the power of capital and to read on investing adventures across the globe. Please pick up my book on Amazon. It posts on October 25th. It's also tomorrow. 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 <laughs> uh, it posts at Amazon, like I said, Barnes and Noble, likely your local bookseller as well. Um, and it was written to be sort of a fun adventure across the globe, um, but it's got a lot of tech, uh, technical uh, theory in there as well on how investment capital can promote change. If you like the investment themes we've talked through, please join me at globaldeltacapital.com. Our investment philosophy is that we can use the power of capital to generate a return for investors and to build a sustainable future through our investments. We welcome you in joining us on this journey ahead. Thanks again to Asha Mehta, founder and managing partner and the CIO at Global Delta Capital and the author of Power of Capital and to our sponsor, the Series Accelerator for Sustainable Capital Markets. The Series Accelerator is a center of excellence within Series that aims to transform the practices and policies that govern capital markets to reduce the worst financial impacts of the climate crisis. For more information, go to series.org slash accelerator. That's C-E-R-E-S dot org slash accelerator. And to our listeners, join us again next week for another episode. I'm Paul Ellis, and this is the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Music